Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a banker whose mission is to seek out and develop the technology that will transform the future of finance. I wouldn't so much say that big banks are idea poor. I think they don't have the same luxury in a highly regulated environment to be able to fail fast as startups do. Because if we fail at certain of our processes, people go to jail. Whereas it's not the case when you don't service any clients. And so I think the best way for the two to come together is through the way that we're doing, which is to make investments. That was Rana Yared, a partner and managing director at Goldman Sachs Principal Strategic Investments, who leads the bank's fintech investment strategy. She came into the FT to talk to me about some of her recent investments and how technology is changing the finance industry. Welcome, Rana. Can you tell us, first of all, what does the Principal Strategic Investments do and what do you personally do? So the PSI team is responsible for making financial technology investments on behalf of Goldman Sachs, which are deemed to be strategic, and we deem all of fintech to be strategic, and we use Goldman Sachs balance sheet money to do that. We also invest in what we term to be financial services enableable enterprise technology, so basically technology that we can actually put to work at Goldman's, and we've been doing this for 20 years, since 1999. We think of ourselves as the original fintech investor when taking an exchange from voice to e was considered fintech. How much have you invested over that time? I'm not sure how much we've invested over that period, but we currently have over a billion dollars of the firm's balance sheet invested. When you think of Goldman Sachs, you tend to think of Goldman dominating the commanding heights of the economy and the big enterprises and the stock market companies. You think of them a lot less in this new emerging startup world. So tell us, what is the strategy of Goldman? Why are you paying so much attention to what is going on in the lower depths of the economy? Sure. So what I'll start by saying is that this is actually not a new trend for the firm. So my team has been around since 1999, and we've been investing in new ventures since 1999. So some of our original investments were Arca and were ICE. And so the firm has always been very interested in what we originally called market structure, which is what we trade, how we trade, and where we trade it, and how startups can impact the opportunities that exist in the market and can help us service our clients better. And so what we're seeing today much more publicly is a longstanding two-decade trend. And the reason why we care about it is because, you know, as markets move, we want to make sure that we are, one, at the forefront of innovation, and two, at the forefront of providing high-quality services to our clients. And making these investments allows us to do both. Okay. And you split your time very much between kind of New York and London. Can you tell us about the differences in the tech ecosystem between London and New York, particularly in the fintech space? So I'm super lucky. I've had the opportunity to look after both teams now for some period of time. I've got a counterpart in Asia, and then we both report into a partner called Darren Cohen, who runs the team totally. The big difference between New York and London is that I actually think London has been very blessed to have both the center of financial services and a center of educational talent in the same exact place. So it has both fin and tech. It has both fin and tech, whereas I would say in the U.S., historically, the center of financial services was New York and the center of both technological innovation as well as money that was willing to fund entrepreneurs was in San Francisco. And so New York has been playing catch up and very well to try to get the startup talent into the same place as the underlying ecosystem and knowledge. London hasn't had to do that between the universities that are very close, the ones that are physically in London, and then the business of the city, you've had everything in a single place. 
And in London, what are the strengths of the fintech world? What are the most interesting opportunities that you see? So the most differentiating opportunities that have come out of London have been catalyzed by some of the regulation, both uniquely British as well as European broadly. So open banking and PSD2 have really opened a wave of challengers to some of the incumbents. Can you say what PSD2 is for our listeners? It is the Payments and Settlements Directive 2, which suggests that they had a first one at some point. (laughs) Uh And what does that encourage the fintech companies to do? So what that encourages to have happen is for large banks to make available to their clients competitive pricing for underlying services, which then allows fintechs to effectively compete for services from clients that don't belong to them. And how about the rest of Europe? Are interesting fintech companies emerging elsewhere in Europe? There are. So we've seen an increase in activity both in Germany and Berlin in particular in Germany, as well as in France. So for the first time in years, we looked at a half a dozen or so companies in France in the same year. And what particular sectors are they? All across. So in Germany, it's been a bigger focus on capital markets technology. In France, because it's been a center for a lot of commodities trading in the past, we've actually seen quite a few fintech companies that center around servicing both the physical commodities markets as well as freight. Let's talk about some of the investments that you have made in some of the companies. Can you talk us through some of these? To list them, there's Nutmeg, Immersive Labs, Trussell, Bud Eigen, and Diff Blue. Could you tell me what they focus on and why you were interested in them? Absolutely. So you've just listed off our UK portfolio companies that we've added in the last 15 months. Some are fintech, some are just tech tech. And if we take them in order, the youngest company in our book is Immersive Labs. They are a company based in Bristol that does training for cybersecurity. And they don't do it for cyber experts. They do it for everyone else who has to know what to do. So in this world of increasing danger and threat, we think that they're extremely important to financial services who actually have a treasure trove of private data. Then we made the investment in Trussell, which is a UK fully online mortgage broker. So mortgages are still brokered here in the UK by humans. 70 plus percent of them have someone walking into a branch somewhere on the high street. And Trussell aims to make that experience much more pleasant, electronic and seamless for the end consumer. Bud is a personal financial management planner plus a marketplace that takes advantage of this open banking rule that we were previously speaking of. They're based here in London, and we think they're on trend with what's happening in the UK. And then Eigen is a natural language processing company, also based here in London. And they do things like help us read docs by pulling out the important terms. And so they automate a lot of the very manual and error-prone processes of analyzing docs. And Nutmeg, can you talk about that? Nutmeg, yes. So Nutmeg was recently announced. It is a automated asset allocator, better known as a robo-advisor. We made that investment after knowing the company for a very long, long time. And we think and we hope that Nutmeg will be at the forefront of the trend where not just the ultra high net worth, but also the mass affluent and the hopeful of being mass affluent have an ability to intelligently invest their money in line with the risk profile that they choose. So it's the democratization of investment. And how much have you invested in total in those companies? 50 million pounds. Okay. And are you making these investments as a traditional VC would, or is there a particular Goldman Sachs mentality in making these investments? 
We think we have a special spin on investing. You know, as it says on the tin, we think that when we invest in financial technology, we do so strategically, which means that we bring a lot to the table to help these young companies grow. And equally, we think that there's an opportunity for them to work with us in a way that helps us service our clients better. So we think that there is a very particular Goldman spin to it. That said, all of the metrics that you would assume that a normal venture fund would have, we have in terms of returns, need to make PL, et cetera. But we have the luxury of doing it using balance sheet money. And so we don't have some of the constraints associated with end of fund life. So we can be a little more patient. Have any of the investments that PSI has made over the past 20 years been absorbed into the Goldman Sachs mothership? Not to my knowledge, but I missed the first eight years of the 20s. <laughs> okay. I'd like to talk to you about blockchain, which I know you have very strong views about. How excited should we be getting about blockchain? I think we should be very excited about blockchain, not because of what blockchain itself can do, but all the discussion around distributed ledgers and blockchain have ignited the imagination across the financial services industry to really start thinking about how we solve significant problems of automation and workflow and capital efficiency. And so whether or not the ultimate solution to those problems is blockchain or distributed ledger related, the mere existence of those two has caused us to look into how you solve those and so has reimagined a lot of the workflow around financial services. So even without its pure implementation, it's been very interesting. Where do you think it will make the biggest difference? I think the original biggest difference it will probably make is in workflow. So we are a part in the U.S. of the proof of concept that's being done with a company called Axoni. For full disclosure, we are an investor. And Axoni is seeking to bring extra efficiency to total return equity swaps by making the settlement process more real-time. And so there's a real opportunity to reduce the operational burden around those particular trades. Now, part of the promise of distributed ledger technology is that it will distribute power away from the center, as it were, to the periphery, to uh, other actors in the economy, and will massively disrupt the big players in this area. Is that going to happen? So what you've just described is how one would describe a fully public blockchain or distributed ledger. But if we take just the Axoni use case for a second, OTC total return swaps actually aren't centered anywhere. They're traded over the counter, not on a centralized exchange. The process of reconciling them and settling them is... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's quite laborious. And so to have golden records at each point, so for every counterpart and client that trades, will actually reduce operational burden. It doesn't change the actors in this particular case. So you think it's a good technology for improving process, but it's not going to revolutionize the entire financial services industry? I think it's a good technology for improving process, which in the first instance will not necessarily 
revolutionized, but which has the ability to. So just to give an example quite publicly, CLS, which is the Central Settlement Service for a significant number of global currencies, has announced their CLS now, which is their real-time settlement across certain currency corridors. To begin with, you know, that will be a funding and capital efficiency tool. But it is also a prerequisite for a lot of the dreams that people have of real-time settlement of securities to be able to create the atomic settlement of the cash which today you can't because cash is T plus two settled. So while CLS is launching a very important capital efficiency tool, you could see how that might morph into something that enables a revolution or an evolution in the market broadly. What about crypto? We've obviously seen an extraordinarily volatile market. What's the Goldman Sachs view? So as we've publicly said, you know, we have the ability to trade futures and non-deliverable forwards. The futures are traded on CME and on the CBOE. And of course, CBOE has announced that they will end that line of business. We're open you know, for business with our clients on that particular front. You know, we continue to be of the view that the hurdle to trade physical crypto is incredibly high because the infrastructure has to match the regulatory requirements of ourselves and our clients. And so while a lot of our clients have asked questions and have had enthusiasm, they then take pause when they look at the infrastructure and the approvals that they would need from their own boards and compliance departments. So there's still some material catch up to take place for the physical to be broadly adopted by highly regulated actors. I'd like to talk a bit about the kind of model of fintech companies. I mean, as I've heard you put it, a lot of startups are idea rich, but cash poor, and the big banks tend to be cash rich and idea poor. How are these two worlds going to merge, do you think? We'd like to think that we're part of the solution for that merger. I wouldn't so much say that big banks are idea poor. I think they don't have the same luxury in a highly regulated environment to be able to fail fast as startups do. Because if we fail at certain of our processes, people go to jail. Whereas that's not the case when you don't service any clients. And so I think the best way for the two to come together is through the way that we're doing, which is to make investments um, for us to become users of the best bits that financial technology companies have to offer, and then to marry that with what we believe is our deep expertise in financial markets, as well as in servicing the needs of our clients. And are many of these fintech companies sustainable businesses in their own right, or is really their ultimate goal to be bought out by a big bank? Some are, and certainly we hope that everything in our investment portfolio strives to be standalone sustainable. And the reason for that is because you know, you can't raise money forever. So this happens to be a benign fundraising environment, but you just don't know what the future foretells. And so if you don't have a financial model that ultimately leads to financial independence from that fundraising, you're potentially in peril. And you know some of the models that exist today can't go on forever. And so Surely the goals of some of those entrepreneurs must be to be bought out, knowing that the music won't just continue. One of the things that you were talking about there was that startups have an ability to fail fast. And there's certainly been an enabling regulatory environment in London with the kind of regulatory sandbox and so on, which has had quite a lot of critics as well. What's your view on that? Has it enabled good innovation to take place or is it inherently dangerous? So I can't speak to the danger specifically because I've not been made aware of any issues that have happened coming out of the sandbox. But I do think that the UK authorities have created an ethos that is very welcoming of innovation and financial services in particular. And just having a regulator put out a sandbox idea 
dangers put aside, suggests to potential entrepreneurs that they will be welcome at a regulator when they start to ask questions. So if only for that, it has been positive. Okay. Now, a lot of fintech companies, in a way, provide very good links in the financial chain. Is it possible for a multitude of these fintech companies to link all of those links together and to create a full service bank or financial institution? Or do you think they're only ever going to do part of that financial chain? So I think it's possible, but improbable. And the reason why I say that is because you'd have to have multiple sets of shareholders coming together to either allow for mergers. So you can imagine a startup bank that is deposit taking, merging with a online lender, merging with a payments company, merging with an SME specialist. That's four sets of shareholders. That is a very complex process to work your way through. Equally, it would take a lot of capital for a single company to address all of that. So I think both are low likelihood events, but the banks, particularly on the latter one, which is one company getting the capital to do all of it, should not by any means sit on the collective laurels because it could happen. And in some countries, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of China, where there are less powerful incumbent or legacy institutions, they are designing a whole new financial architecture. Would it be easier to create a fintech chain in a country like China? I have to say you've reached outside my area of expertise here. I don't know if it's easier or harder, but I would say that the conditions were more enabling because they had the opportunity to leapfrog generationally the technology that existed in the West, and that's what they ultimately did. Okay, but in the West, do you think that some of these fintech companies might suck value out of particular parts of the financial chain, but they're very unlikely to disrupt Goldman Sachs entirely? I think in the West, several of these fintechs could be very profitable. I don't know if I say that they would disrupt Goldman's in particular, but we are very aware of their activities because to the extent that they have the ability to do so, you know, we want the ability to, through our own innovation, respond in a way that is appealing to clients, which is the ultimate reason that we exist is to service our clients, and then to be able to provide services that our clients find interesting and attractive. Be very interested to know what Goldman itself learns from all of the investments that it's making and the activities that you're up to in the kind of fintech world. I mean, I've heard people at Goldman describe their business as a technology business. So what are you learning from a lot of these startups that you're absorbing into the operations of the main company? We are certainly a technology business insofar as our business is almost completely electronic and automated. And so that is a very true statement. What we're learning, I think, is two things. One We're learning where our own comparative and competitive advantages are. And in the places where they don't exist, we're opening ourselves up to actually having the experts provide those services. So we are more open to vendor usage than perhaps one would have said that we were in the past. And I think the second thing that we are learning from them is some of the techniques around development, quick development, some of the newest academic research that comes out, because quite a lot of our companies are born with one or two of the people coming out of a major academic center. And so having that academic knowledge also be transferred over is very enlightening to our broader engineers, traders, salespeople, investment managers, who also work with a lot of the startups that we invest in. So there's a knowledge sharing that takes place there. Goldman has also set up Marcus, which is in a way a startup retail bank. Has that been informed by some of the things that you've learned in the other fintech activities? Certainly, 
the arrival of Marcus is informed by the firm's total understanding of fintech. And when we first launched Marcus in the U.S., in fact, prior to, to the launch, we really did treat the build like it was a fintech startup, right? People were segregated away from the rest of the firm. You know, that was the only thing that they were focused on. It was an integrated team from front office down to engineering and operations. And it really felt like a startup enterprise. And so having the foresight to do that, I think, is the output of the firm's collective learnings from its investments, not just in PSI, but also through our merchant bank. That must have been two very interesting cultures between the traditional Goldman Sachs and the startup markets. I think it worked because the Marcus team was a combination of people that came from outside of Goldman and people that were contributed from inside of Goldman. And so the latter taught the former how to Goldmanize and the former taught the latter how to startupize. And to what extent is technology a competitive advantage for Goldman? If I remember rightly, about a third of the partners at Goldman are technology partners. Does that give you a big advantage over a lot of the other US banks in particular? So I'm not so sure if it's a third of the partners, but a third of the overall employee pool are engineers. Does it give us an advantage over the other U.S. banks? I'm not so sure just the sheer number does, but I will say that we think that our engineers have particular expertise in solving some of the most challenging problems that arise in financial markets and which our clients bring to us. That is different than saying that we are expert in every single function that an engineer might ever undertake. And so part of how we've evolved ourselves is to focus on what we're expert in. Final question. These are my words, not yours, but markets, it seems to me, are all about information arbitrage. One person has more knowledge than the other, otherwise they wouldn't trade. Is technology giving people a different way of having better information? Technology is giving people more information. I haven't yet reconciled whether that means it's better information because so much data is being created that it's very challenging in some cases to separate signal from noise. And I would say that what traditional financial institutions offer is the expertise to help non-experts sort out noise from signal. One financier I was talking to recently said that up until very recently, there was a massive advantage in having more information than someone else. Now, pretty much because of our data-rich world, everyone has a very similar level of data and information. So the real skill is interpreting that data. Is that right? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. It's the interpretation and being able to bring your historic lens and expertise and the fact that you can do pattern recognition, both as a human and uh, to program a machine, that is where the advantage is found. And the NLP company that you've invested in, is that one of their main points of focus? I mean, is that what they're trying to do? So I think that's part of their long-term goal. The way that we Goldmans use them today is to help us do document management, which sounds really drab and boring, but actually very important because all the key terms in our trading docs need to be read and actually pulled out. Are you using that for sentiment analysis? I mean, some traders go through all of the statements that are made by company chief executives and look how many times they mention the word recession or growth or investment. Are you doing that at all? We're not, no. All right, Rana, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I was thrilled to be here. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, do let us know what you think of our show. You can email us at tectonic at ft.com. And if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.